Morning, friends. So good to see you today. Um, let me, before I forget, wish you Merry Christmas, in case I forget at the end of the service. I, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 1. For the last several weeks, we have been uh, examining, oh, let's call it the backstory of Christ's birth. Uh, this doesn't give us the account of the, the manger or Mary and Joseph. John chapter 1 goes back a lot further than that. Uh, traces Christ uh, to his, uh, well, he, he's never had a beginning, uh, but this passage begins with uh, his time before the world was created with the Father in eternity past. So this is the backstory of all backstories uh, about Jesus Christ, who he is. Uh, where he came from, that leads into uh, the uh, narrative of Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 1. Well, this is the fourth uh, message uh, in this, fourth and final message in this Advent series. Uh, we've been tracing the word throughout these 18 verses, and we'll conclude with verses 14 through 18 this morning. Uh, Lord willing. So let's read this passage, this portion of our uh, of John's prologue, beginning in verse 14. Hope you have a Bible with you, and that you have it open to uh, John chapter 1, verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is God's uh, inerrant and authoritative word. May he bless what we've read. And let's ask for help this morning as we look into these verses. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this account of your son before time began and uh, when time began, how he came into the world in the, in the manger, uh, his entrance into our human condition. God, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Help us to understand and grasp the immense, immense lengths to which you went to bring us a Savior. I pray that you would stir up a fresh appreciation in our hearts today as we prepare to celebrate the birth of your son tomorrow. God, help us. Do this in us by your good spirit. We don't want any contrived human emotions. We want to feel genuine awe at Christ. Help us to see his glory in these words today. Father, to see how your astounding plan unfolded in history and as it's in the Bible, it happened right before our very eyes. Help us today, Jesus. Help me to preach. 
strengthen us to hear. We commit ourselves to you. Pray this in our Savior's name. Amen. With these uh, words of our passage today, verses 14 through 18, John opens the door on one of the greatest mysteries in the entire Bible. The entire Bible. Uh, Martin Luther, the great uh, reformer, one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation, put it like this. The mystery of the humanity of Christ that he sunk himself into our flesh is beyond all human understanding. And so at some point today, we're, we're not going to fully get it. Uh, because I agree with Luther that Jesus became a man is beyond our understanding. And then much later than that, J.I. Packer added this. Sorry, that's a little small. But... Uh, uh, British theologian Packer wrote, The supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us lies not in the Good, Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. Now, that's a pretty bold statement and strong statement. It, maybe you're familiar with that very last word in Packer's quote, incarnation. Uh, in case you're not, incarnation is based on the Latin word carnus. I have no knowledge of Latin whatsoever, so please forgive me if I go astray here. Incarnation is based on the Latin word carnus, which means flesh. And so the word incarnation literally means enfleshment. We're talking about the enfleshment of Jesus Christ. How the Son of God took on a human body. Now some of us take that for granted. And some of you have already left the building. Come back in. And have a seat. I'm not preaching this message for my health. My hope and goal this morning is for us to gain a fresh appreciation of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Whether you're an old hand at following Christ, or whether you're a young apprentice, my hope is that we'll all leave the building this morning with a fresh appreciation of this mystery. I hope to help you see and savor this incredible mystery that Luther said was beyond all human understanding. And I want to help you appreciate uh, the mystery of the incarnation that Packer describes as the supreme mystery. How, how will we do this? How will we go about this? Whether you're an old-timer in the faith or a, a young apprentice, how do we come to this appreciation of this astounding reality that Christ became a human. Well, I think what will help us is as we look at the four incredible benefits of the incarnation that John describes in these verses today. Verses 14 through 18 uh, describe four incredible benefits of the incarnation. And let me, let me stop and say the greatest of which 
is Christ's death for sinners on the cross. His payment for sin. Uh, We'll not address that directly. We'll come at it from different angles. But above and beyond all things, the far greatest benefit is that Christ became a human to die for sinners. Let Let me describe the four other benefits that he talks about in our text. Uh, The first benefit that we find is the presence of God. Uh, Through the incarnation, God drew near and began to live among his people. God drew near uh, through the incarnation and began to live among his people. Let me point out two things uh, to you here about the presence of God. First, I want to describe his being to you, uh, that the word took on flesh and bone. Look at verse 14 in your Bible. It simply says, and the word became flesh. What's John describing here? Or let me ask, who is John describing here when he says the word became flesh? That's the word that he's been describing all throughout these verses, Uh, Recall in verse 1 through 3, he described the eternal word, that the word existed with God the Father before the world was created. The the word, rather, was the one who carried out the Father's creation order. The word was the agent of creation. And then in verses 4 and 5, John describes uh, him as uh, the word, the life-giving word. Uh, the word that imparted spiritual life to, who the, um, to those who were spiritually dead. Last Sunday, in verses 6 through uh, 13, uh, John described him as the word of light, the light that shines and illumines all humanity, the light that shined and illumined our sinful condition, revealing our sin and our need for a Savior. It's, it's the same word that he brings up again today. And the word, that word, the word I've been describing this whole time, that pre-existent one, that pre-existent one who was with the Father before the creation of the world, that word became flesh, or became flesh and bone, as you and I uh, perhaps would say. This pre-existing word took on a human body. Um, the word became flesh means that in, in addition to his eternal pre-existing state, the word now took on uh, our human condition. Um, the, the Westminster Confession, which is an old statement of faith, described it like this. That they've said it well. The Son of God, being very and eternal God, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. The Apostle Paul uh, summed it up in one verse. For in him, in the Son, And Jesus Christ, in that word we are talking about, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells 
bodily or dwells in bodily form or dwells in a body, you could say. Uh, and just moments ago, we read this from Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children, which is us, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He had, whoops, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. One pastor put it like this, Christ's incarnation means that the Son of God became human in the fullest sense without losing any of his divinity. First John describes his being, and I hope you can see through this that, wow, we are just, we are just scratching at the surface. We're like some of those stickers you're going to try to peel off tomorrow morning. And you peck at that thing, you just can't get underneath it. And this is kind of that thing. I'm, I'm scratching at, at, at the surface of who the Word was and who He is described as. I assure you it's bottomless. Not only do we see His being, the Word became flesh, became human. But we also see His dwelling. Uh, the Word in human form came to live among us. Verse 14 goes on to say, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt is rather unusual, and it can refer to just taking up residence somewhere, to, to live someplace. But more its more literal use refers to setting up a tent to live in. Pitching a tent, we would, we would call it. So we could translate this verse, the word became flesh, and pitched a tent among us. Or we could even say the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, is the way some, uh, footnote, uh, some of your footnotes say. What is the point of John using this strange verb about setting up a tent? Well, through that verb, John is specifically referring to Israel's temporary place of worship in the Old Testament called the Tent of Meeting or the Tabernacle. It was here at, uh, uh, it is uh, this um, building right back here. This is the entire tabernacle structure. It's smaller than a, a football field. Oh, here's an ancient picture we somehow got a hold of. <laughs> Complete with the... Uh, Highway running in the background there. No. But this gives you a, a feel of its size. Here's another picture, and it whoops, shows you uh, the size of the court of the tabernacle, the tabernacle itself being right here. And um, it was here where God caused his presence to dwell uh, among the Israelites during their wilderness wanderings. And you might recall, if you've read the book of Exodus, that this is where he caused his presence to dwell in uh, what's referred to as a glory cloud or a pillar of cloud. At night, it was a pillar of fire. By day, it was uh, a pillar of cloud. 
so let's go back to John. John is telling us here that the human body of Jesus was the new location for God's presence on earth. The Word became flesh and tented among us, tabernacled among us. It's not just through a cloud or a pillar of fire above the tent of meeting. The presence of God is a, is a person now, and He walked among us. Well, you and I have a benefit that's even greater than this. You and I have the presence of God if you know Christ as your Savior and Lord dwelling inside you through God the Holy Spirit who takes up residence in us uh, when we trust in Christ as our Savior and Lord. But in John's era, the reality of the Holy Spirit didn't come until the day of Pentecost. And this was the Word's dwelling among them. He tabernacled among them, dwelt among them. And so the first benefit of the incarnation is the presence of God, the, the eternal pre-existing Word who was God's agent of creation at the very beginning. He took on our humanity and he began to live among us. Well, there's a second benefit. John goes on to say, not only do we benefit from the presence of God, we benefit from the glory of God. It, it is, I guess I got excited on that last sentence. <clears throat> it is uh, Christ. It's in Christ that God's glory is seen most clearly. No longer is it simply uh, in, a, in a cloud uh, above the tent of meeting or a pillar of fire at nighttime above the tent of meeting. It's in the glory of God is seen in the person of Christ. Listen to, listen to the way um, Moses describes the cloud in and listen to the difference. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Where, uh, Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. But now the glory of God that Israel saw in the wilderness wanderings was visible in Christ. Uh, the middle of verse 14 says, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. The glory that John refers to here was the glory of God put on display through Jesus' entire ministry, his miracles in particular. 
they saw the glory of God through the miracles of Christ. And so, for example, there's this uh, explanation in John chapter 2. This, this is at the wedding of Cana, where Jesus turned the water into wine. And uh, John writes, this, the first of his signs... Or, or miracles, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory or displayed his glory and his disciples believed in him. His men could uh, visibly and physically see the glory of God displayed in Jesus' miracles, his healings. But they saw his glory most especially through his death on the cross for sinners and through his resurrection from the dead and through his ascension to the Father's right hand. It was those three events in particular that put the glory of God on display. On the very brink of his crucifixion, Jesus said this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be Crucified? Yes, that was coming, but he says, he doesn't say crucified, to be glorified. When Judas left the upper room to uh, carry out his betrayal of Jesus, uh, Jesus said after he had left, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. It was the whole ministry of Jesus through which they saw the glory of God, the miracles, the healings, um, the, the, the stilling of the water, the calming of the sea. But in particular, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension to the Father's right hand. John says, now, all this is the very thing we would expect to see in the Son of God. That's what we would expect to see in the man who said he was God's unique Son. And so he goes on to say, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The various displays they saw were, were the kind of only the kind of things that the unique Son of God could do. The, the things Christ did were just like the glorious things His Father did, like Father, like Son. And the Son is especially like the Father in that it says He was full of grace and truth. Notice that in particular in verse 14 in your Bible. Very last words, full of grace and truth. That phrase is... is important for this reason. It is John's way of writing in the Greek language the Hebrew phrase that we see in the Old Testament uh, that's repeated uh, several times to describe the Father. How's the Father, God the Father, described in the Old Testament? Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And what John is saying here, that's, this is the Greek way of saying the same thing. That Christ, like his Father, uh, abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, full of grace and truth. Uh, this is how God revealed himself to Moses. 
the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the way King David described the Lord. But you, O Lord, are a God, uh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger. And look at the same words, abounding and steadfast love and faithfulness. Those two phrases, steadfast love, which is one Hebrew term, and faithfulness, which is another, are repeated all the way through the Old Testament. And when God says it of himself, and often when people praise God's name, they say he abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. And John is telling us here, the same is true of Christ. He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is full of grace and truth. The glory that they've seen in Christ, says John, are just like the glorious things that they've seen in God the Father. In particular, that he abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. And then look in your Bible, there's a parenthesis in verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me. Now, think of Jesus' ministry. Jesus didn't come before John. Uh, Jesus came after John. Jesus was born after John. So this is a reference not to when his ministry began. This is a reference to his pre-existence. John is also affirming the uh, eternal nature of this son and his glory that they have seen. So the second benefit of the incarnation is that it is Christ, uh, in Christ, that they see the glory of God uh, displayed, put on display through his miracles, but mostly through his death, uh, burial, and his resurrection. This brings us to a third benefit, uh, the third benefit of, of the incarnation. Uh, again, uh, why do we, or why should we appreciate um, the, the, the incarnation? And how do we grow in our appreciation? Is we understand that uh, um, one benefit is the presence of God. God came near. God became human and dwelt among us. And the second benefit we've seen is, is it's in Christ that God displays his glory. And now thirdly, uh, the third benefit is it's the grace of God is poured out through Jesus Christ. Believers receive an inexhaustible supply of grace through Jesus Christ. Now, I be, want to be careful. I don't know if you're awake this morning or not, if you've had a late night celebrating with family. And so the words inexhaustible supply of grace can just go in one ear and right out the other. How would you like an inexhaustible supply of grace? If you're a sane person like Tony Ingram over there, you're thinking, wow, I would love that. I would love that. 
I'm one of those people who have to go back to work on Tuesday. I'm sorry. Uh, and boy, I'm going to need grace when I walk in the door. Guess where you can find that grace? Christ. And look what it says about this inexhaustible supply of grace. We find this in verse 16. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. What, what, what fullness? What does that refer to? Well, that, that refers to what he said back up in verse uh, 14. Remember that last phrase in verse 14 that we talked about? Full of grace and truth abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That fullness is what he's drawing our attention back to. From that fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. A lot of ink has been spilled trying to explain those three words, grace upon grace. More literally, it's grace instead of grace. Uh, the idea is that as one um, uh, dose, shall I say dose, one dose of grace begins to fade, and it's like taking aspirin when you're, well, nobody takes aspirin anymore, takes Tylenol or Advil when you're, you're sick with a cold, as one dose begins to fade out of your body, well, you take another dose after six hours. Uh, it's like dose follows dose, and, and as one one dose of grace begins to fade and recede. Another supply of grace comes and replaces it. Grace instead of grace. Grace upon grace. One grace after the other. It's, it's John's way of describing an inexhaustible supply of grace. And John says, Jesus is the definitive and ultimate expression of grace and truth or steadfast love and faithfulness. Notice verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, and he's not bad-mouthing the law. He's not putting down the law. The law revealed uh, the character of God to us. Uh, the law reveals God's righteous requirements. But he goes on to say, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Hebrews reminds us that Christ is superior to Moses. Christ, we see the fullest and most complete expression of God's steadfast love and faithfulness, or grace and truth. Uh, it is in Christ that we have this inexhaustible supply of grace. Pastor Rob, how come I don't feel that? There's no guarantee that you'll feel anything. But what we do is ask for it. God, I need grace. I, and... It's just, you know, talk about praying without ceasing, you know. Uh, I, I think of the countless times that I'm 
moving through my day and I just utter one word, grace, God, grace. And that's how we access his supply of grace. We ask. The Lord promises to give whatever we need in Christ. And so you, you may not feel a, a shot of uh, adrenaline rushing through your body. You probably won't. We ask for it and then trust that he will provide it. God is able uh, to provide all grace so that having sufficiency, I'm trying to quote 2 Corinthians 9.8. You should write that down because every time I try to quote something now, it, it just... But that's a great verse that talks about the inexhaustible supply of God's grace. You'll have to take my word for it. Look it up when you get home today. The grace of God is a benefit of the incarnation. It's through Christ that we get grace instead of grace. Grace upon grace. And there's a fourth benefit of the incarnation. It is through Christ that we see God the Father most clearly. We receive revelation of who God is and what is like, what He's like through Christ like nothing else. Uh, let me mention two things here about this revelation. First is the invisible. Um, John reminds us to begin with that God the Father is invisible. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. Well, what about Isaiah chapter 6 when I saw the Lord high and lifted up? Well, John tells us that was actually Jesus. Uh, he says that in John chapter 12, I believe. Uh, tells us that Isaiah saw Christ seated on the throne. Paul affirms this same truth. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who ha alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. And then Paul adds in Colossians that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Paul uh, John reminds us, first of all, that God is invisible. No one has ever seen God. And then second, he mentions the visible. Uh, as verse 18 goes on to say, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. John's already identified uh, Jesus in this way uh, back in verse 1. Uh, it says, and the word was with God. And here uh, John is again alluding to the, the fellowship that God the Father and God the Son have in the Trinity. Of course, there's God the Holy Spirit as well. But it says, the only God who is at the Father's side, and your footnote in the ESV says, or in the bosom of the Father. It's a very, very important uh, way to see what takes place in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This, in particular, with the Father and the Son. Uh, in the bosom of the Father 
is a Hebrew expression describing either the chest or the lap of a mom and dad, the way they would care and protect um, a, a child, um, you know, take Charlotte Rose and practice and you get an idea of what, what this is about today as you see uh, her being held in her mom's, uh, against her mom's chest. That's what we're talking about. It's not that this literally takes place between God the Father and God the Son, but that they are in that close kind of communion and and fellowship, uh, intimate fellowship between Father and Son. And John is saying, this one who is at the Father's side, this one in, in such close communion, he, that one, has made him known. Who else could better explain the Father than the Son who is, who is at his chest, at his side? That's the one who has explained him. The word is, he, he has exegeted him, which is what I'm trying to do right now. It's taking a text and explaining it to you uh, so that it makes sense. And that's what Christ does about God the Father. He has explained him. He has exegeted him uh, to us. In fact, Christ has explained the Father so well through the incarnation that he could say this to Philip in John 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Lord, just, just, show, us, just show us your Father, and we'll be okay. We'll be good with that. And Jesus replies, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, that's an amazing statement. How can you say, show us the Father? Through Jesus, uh, and through his incarnation, he has so wonderfully and perfectly revealed the Father to us that he could say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The author of Hebrews put it this way, he is the radiance, talking of Jesus, the Son, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That word imprint refers to the impression made by a stamp as uh, coinage was made back then. It was stamped and it left an impression in whatever material uh, they were making the coin out of. Uh, um, Wayne Grudem says that it could say, and the ex he was an exact duplicate of his nature. So perfectly, um, Jesus the Son reveals uh, the invisible Father uh, to you and me. So this is the fourth benefit of the incarnation. It's the revelation of God. Jesus, the visible God, reveals and explains the invisible God to you and I. Well, so how do we go about 
gaining this appreciation of the incarnation. And I pray that we come to see it in such a way that it, it, we see it as a breathtaking reality. Whether you're old in the faith, maybe especially if you're older in the faith, uh, or whether you're young in the faith. I think we appreciate this and savor this when we lay hold of these four benefits John presents, uh, presents to us in verses 14 through 18. And that is through the incarnation. We benefit from the presence of God and us now in the age of the new covenant, even more so through the indwelling Holy Spirit. The, the second benefit is we see in Christ the best uh, replication of God's glory in Jesus the Son. He is the expression of God's glory in Christ. The, the incarnation, the, the third benefit of the incarnation is, is an inexhaustible supply of, of God's grace that flows uh, to you and me, to believers uh, in an unending stream. And finally, uh, the fourth benefit is Christ perfectly presents God the Father to us, an exact uh, representation of his being. So, uh, application-wise, gee, I've never heard this before, um, that Jesus became a human. I mean, it's possible you could be here and have not not familiar with the incarnation at all. It's astounding that God became human to pay for our sins on the cross. The pre-existent one took on our humanity uh, in order to die for uh, uh, die for sinners upon the cross, and be buried and raised again. So I want to ask you, if you've ever trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've ever put your faith in his atoning death uh, on the cross, if you've ever turned away from your sinful life to, to trust in Christ and him only for the forgiveness of your sins, that's where we start the application today, is by coming to rely on Christ's payment for sin. And if you have done that, then the application is, friend, to, to marinate on these uh, verses in John chapter 1, that he became flesh. And because he became human, he knows our sufferings, and we know his Father. Uh, and we have communion with Christ, fellowship with him, uh, we have fellowship with God the Father through Jesus the Son, all because of the Incarnation. And as you're tearing op open your presence in the morning or tonight or whenever you do it, maybe just pause and think, wow. Above and beyond this, Christ became a human uh, for us, for me, uh, that I might know him that my sin might be forgiven, and that I might fellowship with his Father. Let me conclude with uh, 
Let me complete the quote I, I started from J.I. Packer uh, that began the sermon. Again, he's that British theologian with the, with the funny-looking glasses. The supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement or in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of the Incarnation. The really staggering claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man and that he took humanity without loss of deity so that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was human. It is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of Christian revelation lie. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the Incarnation. Let's pray. Thank you, Father for Jesus. Thank you, Savior, that you took on our humanity, uh, keeping your deity at the same time. And thank you for taking our place on the cross. Keep this in mind as we celebrate your birth tomorrow. Savior, enable us and empower us by your good spirit. Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen.